This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome into Attacking Third, brought to you by the Marriott Bonvoy Boundless Card. Reward your passion and earn points when you stay close to the action. I'm Jenny Chu, here with Lisa Carlin. We are here to be your Attacking Third crew. We're going to have Sandra Herrera and Darian Jenkins on later in the show as well, so make sure you stay with us here. But we just got the W Gold Cup draw results, and we're going to talk about them immediately following that. Um, first of all, let's go Group A, Lisa. We got, the United States was obviously going to be in Group A. Immediately, we get Mexico. I know, Jenny. We're sitting here watching it, and, and you knew it. You knew that was going to happen. Immediately, Group of Death. We talked about it earlier. <laughs> is there going to be a Group of Death? I said, if the USA and Mexico are in the same group, that is the Group of Death. I know that people really aren't that high on Mexico, considering that they weren't in the World Cup. They hadn't been doing that great. But they did finish out this year completely unbeaten. Does that give them a little bit of reprieve? Yeah, I think Mexico is a, a nation in this Group A, along with the United States, Argentina, and then either uh, Guyana or the Dominican Republic. Um, that is looking to make a name for themselves. This is a country that has had their ups and downs on the women's side over the last several years, missing out on back-to-back -back Women's World Cup for Mexico. They need redemption. And this was good steps in the right direction for them this year in order to pick up wins, get back on the winning side of things. But there is still a, a lot of inconsistency with this Mexican side. However, it does make for really good competition because the rivalries between the United States and Mexico run so so, so deep, as you know, that, of course, it's going to be a cutthroat match anytime these two nations play each other. Uh, when you look at this, as uh, I'm, th I'm flipping the script on you here. Okay. As a former Mexican women's national team international player, what do you make of this group? H how does this change for Mexico, knowing that they have to go up against the United States? Well, historically, Mexico doesn't do that great against the United States. I will be honest there. Um, but the fact that they brought in a new coach, and um, I've spoken to the different players that are on the national team currently that were on the team when I was there, and things have changed so much, right? We've touched on this on Attacking Third um, prior, but the fact that, you know, they've been under the same system under Leonardo Cuellar and then his son and then um, Roberto Medina and then following that, um, Moni, um, who was the coach during the last uh, iteration of this tournament when they did not make it into the World Cup, right? Um, he has now come in, he is from Spain, and he has that pedigree um, coming from the current World Cup 
champions. He, co he um, coached the, the youth teams in that form, and the players have told me that everything changed under him in terms of structure, in terms of um, respect for the players, and how they go about things is so much more intense and so much more serious than it used to be. And I don't want to say that that was a negative about Mexico, but the fact that, you know, things are changing when they're needed to be changed for a very long time um, is something to look forward to and, and potentially is how Mexico can beat the U.S. I know that this is going to be the first tournament that the U.S. is playing in, so things changing for the U.S. as well. There's going to be a little bit of more consistency for Mexico now that they're under a new coach that will be the head coach going into that tournament. But we can mo now move on to talk about Argentina because I know I want to talk about U.S.-Mexico because that is the big matchup there, but they won third place in the Copa America. Um, and when we talk about Argentina, they were in the World Cup. When we say Mexico wasn't, they were in the World Cup and they did not make it out of the group. What do you expect out of them here? Yeah, I think this is a redemption for Argentina. You look at the different Comibol nations that have made it into this W Gold Cup tournament, and they're looking to kind of expand uh, their resume, as you will, for this. And for Argentina to know that they're going up against Mexico and the United States, um, I, I think that Argentina is going to provide a different wrinkle in this group stage because of how it was laid out. It could have been uh, a number of different teams, right, when you look at who else was, was thrown into these pots and who could have been drawn into it. And the fact that Argentina is in this USA-Mexico group, I actually think that it, it adds a different wrinkle to this group to make it a little bit harder. And then, of course, you have the fourth member of this group, the preliminary winners, um, whether that's uh, Guyana or the Dominican Republic. Those are two nations that have battled and fought, and, and they're going to continue to battle and fight to get into this group. Um, Guyana, they won their group. They only conceded two goals all year, and they've done a really good job defensively. Um, but can they carry that on when they're faced with so many different offensive sides that they will see ultimately in this group? We'll get into Group A a little bit further um, into the show, but let's go ahead and move on to Group B. We knew that Brazil was going to be leading that group um, as they were the Copa America winners, and they are now joined by Panama, Colombia, and the winner between Haiti and Puerto Rico. Um, I think the biggest one here was we were wondering where was Colombia going to go? They had such a strong Women's World Cup. They are now paired with uh, Brazil and Panama here. Who should we keep a bigger eye on there? Is that between Panama and Colombia? Where, where's your head at, Lisa? Honestly, Jenny, this to me might be the group of death. Because oh, the disrespect of, of Mexico. Course, <laughs> I mean, none of these groups are easy, right, when you look across the board. However, within this group, of course, you have Brazil powerhouses who, who fell short at the World Cup, and they did not... Um, they didn't perform how they wanted to. So they've got a little bit of a monkey on their back that they're looking to overcome that. Then you have a Colombian side that has exceeded all expectations at their third ever World Cup, making it to the, the quarterfinals. And they're going to continue to grind and rise throughout this. And then the winners between Puerto Rico and Haiti. I mean, if you look at this Haitian side, they are a team that can... It got knocked off their horse a little bit in these qualifying, uh, going up against Costa Rica. Um, they did not qualify initially, so they will have to play one more round of games in order to get into this one. But there's a lot more to play for in this group, I believe, because of the different styles of play that are also going to be thrown at this group when, when you look at the various nations that could be in here, especially the three that are fully in this one. Yeah, when we talk about Brazil, just really quickly, um, they didn't get out of that World Cup group under P.S. Sinhaga, uh, and they have now uh, hired Arthur Elias. Mm -hmm. And th that's a bit of a difference um, in coaching styles, just to begin there, but we're going to get more into Brazil as we continue in the show. Let's go ahead and move over to Group C, though. Canada was 
obviously leading this group, um, but they are now joined by Costa Rica, Paraguay, and El Salvador or Guatemala. We see the graphic here. Um, the biggest ones here, Canada, but when we talk about Costa Rica, Costa Rica they sure. got into this and such a fun story. Um, it was between them and Haiti, um, that last, last moment. It was either win uh, between St. Kitts and Nevis. Uh, I think Haiti won 13-0. Yes. And then... <clears throat> It was Costa, Costa Rica, Rica won 19-0, and that goal differential is what gets them in for sure and pushes Haiti um, to the preliminary rounds. Um, exactly. But what an incredible story for them. I mean, such a cool story. And, and you look at some of their superstar players, Maria Paulo Salas of Costa Rica. She had seven goals during that match. Um, she opened up the scoring, and, and by halftime, she already had six of them. So it, incredible for her. But this is a Costa Rican side that has a lot of different weapons. And the way they like to play is getting the ball wide, sending crosses into the box, and and I think Canada is a nation that is going through a lot of changes right now emotionally. They, they're dealing with a lot in their federation as well. Um, they just say goodbye to Christine Sinclair, of course. of course. So there's new waves of, of teams that we are seeing uh, throughout this entire Gold Cup. And when you look at this group in particular, um, with Paraguay, Canada, and Costa Rica, and then potentially El Salvador and Guatemala, um, there's going to be a lot of differences to come up into this one because Canada is a team that is looking to prove themselves again. They are Olympic winners. They're also heading into uh, another year where they're looking to pick up wins and championships out of a World Cup where they didn't fare so well either. And meanwhile, Costa Rica, they're riding right now on a lot of success um, throughout these qualifiers for the W Gold Cup. 100%. But again, we want to talk about that biggest team in Canada, that Olympic gold medalist. You talk about a lot of change happening. I don't remember a Canadian national team without Christine Sinclair. Yeah, me either. It's, it's going to be very different. And... I like this because it bodes well for a new Canadian side that has, is going to be able to develop some younger players. There's a lot of young talent that is in Canada, and they haven't had the opportunity to expose themselves and maybe to provide a different look at this Canadian side that's not so get the ball wide, can we send crosses into the area, but uses the flair of some of their top talented players in their front line in order to develop under Canada soccer and make a name for themselves in this W Gold Cup. Well, just most recently, we saw Jesse Fleming um, in Chelsea against Arsenal. We're going to get into that matchup from the weekend a little bit later. But that's one of those players that I expect to see do extremely well against um, or under um, can Canada <clears throat> in this Gold Cup. So I'm really excited to see her continue to break out, continue to be more and more and more of a big part of this team. And I don't know whether um, Christine Sinclair leaving will kind of open up that gap for her a little bit more. It changes things for sure for how Canada soccer wants to play. And, and Christine Sinclair, her role on that side has shifted over the last several years, but it does open up the door for other players and, and for Jesse Fleming to um, take a step in the direction of taking on a bigger role and, and including like being more of a captain and a leadership on the pitch for this Canada side. Um, they did play against Jamaica in this most recent international national window and where they did say goodbye to Christine Sinclair, but they picked up wins and they did it in more of a dominating fashion than we've seen from Canada soccer because they've had a lot of inconsistencies and Sophie Schmidt player on the ball right there. She has done a lot of incredible things for this country as well. And they're going to, they're going to lean on her moving forward, especially in this tournament. Sophie Schmidt is a great call on the Canadian national team. Um, one of the things I want to kind of talk about right now is the prelims because that's what's going to happen um, earliest, which is, I believe, February 17th. Exactly. Um, so out of these, I want to get your predictions here, um, and I'm going to put some in as well. Group B, that is Haiti, 
and Puerto Rico. I have Puerto Rico going in here because of their great performances against Mexico. What about you? I like Puerto Rico. They were second in their group but behind Mexico. They they beat Trinidad and Tobago 2-1, but the way that they lost to Mexico 3-0, it was conceding goals on crossing and finishes. And Haiti, that's, that's how they score goals. They have a little bit of flair, um, but they can also get the ball end line and cross it back. Um, I frankly have Haiti going through. They will be without their forward, Rosalord Borghella, as she received red, a red card in the final match for Haiti in qualifying against Costa Rica. So she will be unavailable for this match. It does change things, but I still have Haiti going through. Uh, Melchie Renee also had the ankle surgery that we mentioned on attacking third yes. last time. So without her, that is a big miss for Haiti as well. Uh, important to remember that. Let's go ahead and make our guesses, our predictions for Group C, El Salvador and Guatemala. For El Salvador, they won their group. Um, they had 24 goals for throughout this. Pretty good. Uh, this qualifying that they played. They only had two goals against. So they did it pretty well and they did it pretty consistently. But this Guatemalan side, um, they, they can be really tight defensive. They don't give up a lot. They sit back, and that's how they're going to play against an El Salvadorian side. I have El Salvador going through ultimately. Oof. I feel like you convinced me there. I'm going to go El Salvador. <laughs> I'm going to go El Salvador just because of your, your conviction there. You sounded sure of yourself, and I wasn't that sure on that matchup. Um, Guyana and Dominican Republic, that is the final match day. Where is your head out for that one? Uh, yes, I like this one a lot. Um, for Guyana, this is a defensive side that also sits back, but they have this mentality when you watch Guyana play where it's like, Every single body is thrown towards the ball. They don't want anything in the back of the net. Um, I, I like the way that they're playing. And against this Dominican Republic side, they went 5-1 and one throughout the group stage. Um, they've got a lot of individual skill, and that's what the Dominican Republic is going to rely on, that flair, the creativity from outside the box, shots from distance. I've got the DR going through Dominican Republic. Okay. I want to skip a prediction just because I wasn't too sure about that one either. Um, <laughs> just because predictions are tough. Predictions are tough on this one. I, maybe I'm going to go with an upset there, and I'll say Guyana goes through on that. Um, we have so much more coming for you on Attacking Third. We're going to be breaking down these groups with Sandra Herrera, and Darian Jenkins will be joining with us later as well, so don't go anywhere. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Attacking third. We oh, just Monica, got finished. You were a part of this historic draw. What do you think of the way the group shaped up? Bueno, creo que son grupos muy interesantes. Eh, lo vemos en el grupo A: Estados Unidos, México, Argentina. Eh, son selecciones. This is Monica Ocampo from a former Mexican national team player saying what she thinks about the draw with Susana Collins. Um, she mentioned Group A there with USA, Mexico, Argentina. These are national teams with very important players as well as some big national teams in Group B. Talking about the growth of these different national teams and I wish all of the teams good luck in this W Gold Cup. How excited are you and how important is this tournament for the footballing world to be able to have their eyes on all of these nations. 
Creo que es muy importante eh, lo que se está haciendo por el fútbol femenino. I think it's very important what they're doing for women's football, not only here in CONCACAF, but all over the world. But this gold cup is really good for the women's football that is working really hard. And I hope that they continue to work hard so that our football continues to grow. Um, that was our Susanna Collins here at the Golazo Network. And that was, our, that was our Jenny Chu doing live translations. That <laughs> was you, amazing. Um, I didn't really get that much from her there. She was very politically correct mm -hmm. in saying that they were great teams mm -hmm. and they were all great players and that, that she wishes them good luck. So it wasn't um, anything scathing that I was hoping for, you know? Maybe Mexico's yeah, gonna beat I, the US or something crazy <laughs> like that would have been a little bit funner. I think one of the messages that uh, Monaco is trying to convey is the growth of the game, right? And, and that the fact that this tournament is happening and that there is an opportunity for more international play for these nations that haven't really developed their women's national team as much. It gives them an opportunity to do that precisely, to develop it, to play against these heavy hitter teams, whether that's the United States, Brazil, or right. Canada. It's now an opportunity for these nations to prove themselves on an incredibly big international stage. Um, and of course, she's like, hey, I wish you all well at the end. Yeah, <laughs> very politically correct, but absolutely. The fact that um, we have this tournament, it just shows the growth of our game as well. Um, why don't we go ahead and listen to Susanna Collins, who's also speaking to Shayna Matthews of the Jamaican uh, national team, if we have that sought. All right, Shayna, we just wrapped the CONCACAF W Gold Cup draw. What was your initial reaction to the way these groups shaped up? I was just really excited. I mean, the way that it kind of played out, to me, it, it makes for more exciting group matches, for sure, with, you know, obviously the unknown with the prelims and, you know, them battling it out early. I think that all the groups will be pretty competitive. So. Okay, if you had to pick one though, what do you think is going to be the toughest group here? The toughest group, I mean, I would still say the group with the United States, Group A would probably be the toughest. I mean, Mexico is, I think, also a team to, to watch mm -hmm. right now, especially with the fact that they missed out on this past World Cup. Um, I think they're definitely going to be a team to 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 watch. And then Argentina, I think that they weren't as happy with the result of their World Cup that they just had. And so this is a an, an unique opportunity for the teams to really just get back out there mm -hmm. and show their stuff. So I think Group A will definitely be the one to watch. Okay, if you had to pick a dark horse team, some team that might surprise people, who would that be? Of any group or just? Any group. Any group. Ah. Dark Horse, I'm going to go with Columbia just because I think that they bring a spiciness, mm -hmm. a flair, but they also play very together. They're, they're very, I think, unified in, in their style and it works for them. Um, I think if, if they're healthy and they come in with a healthy squad, that'll be good. From a competition standpoint, what are you excited for the footballing world to see out of these nations and this competition? I think the goals. I think there will be a lot of goals in this tournament and I think that that should be something that gets people off their feet. And then I think also the competition is getting, it's getting more, 
I would just say the competition is definitely getting a little bit more even. Mm -hmm. And so there are definitely going to be a lot of goals. I think that we might see some low scoring games. I think we might see some penalties and I think it'll just be overall really exciting. You know, such a great opportunity to have the soccer eyes on on this part of the, the soccer playing world. Shana, you did great in the draw too, by the way. Oh, I tried. I just made sure I got the balls <laughs> and open. And the balls match the dress even better. <laughs> Thank you. <that> was <laughs> Thank fun. you so much. Thank you. Again, that was our lovely Susanna Collins with Chaina Matthews, former Jamaican international. She was a part of the draw as well. Her comments on this CONCACAF Gold Cup draw, I know that Susanna was trying to push her to make a, <laughs> make a choice on what group was the hardest, and she did agree with me there, I will I say. Know, I know. I, I like that she gave a shout-out to Mexico. I mean, well, frankly, she, she is a former Jamaican international, so she knows what it's like to play against all of these nations. And I like the way that Shana Matthews said, um, well, the group with the United States, because she is a player that has gone up, with the United, gone up against the United States, played with a lot of players on the women's national team for the United United States and she said that that's always good competition and as a nation you always play your best against uh, the top ranked team that is in your group or, or that you're going up against and in that case it is the United States but yeah she did give a shout out to that group A I knew you were fist pumping over here you, you had to she like saw that me. one she saw me I had to give it to Lisa because she's um you know I'm going to make sure that Sandra knows that you said that as well um, as soon as we get her on. But we have so much more to cover during this draw and the Chelsea Arsenal game that happened this weekend. We want to bring in Darian for that. So stay with us. We have Sandra Herrera next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for staying with us here on Attacking Third. As I promised, Sandra Herrera is joining us now, talking about the groups that we just saw drawn for the W Gold Cup. Sandra, welcome in. Hey there. Happy to be here. Um, Sandra, I have to pick a bone with you here because I know you're really great friends with Lisa Carlin here. <laughs> um, but she just said that the group with USA and Mexico is not the hardest group because Group B with Brazil, Panama, and Colombia looks to be pretty tough as well. I just wanted to give her a hard time. What do you think? You want to... Come to my side Look, over here with the Mexico thing. Oh, I'm the tiebreaker. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I'm just Listen, I love, I love to be a tiebreaker, but I gotta say, having a, a minute or two to reflect and take a look at these groups, I gotta go with Lisa on this one. Group B looks pretty tough. I knew you it would. It does. It, it look. It has good nothing to do. You know, I got a lot of love for you both, but group Group B for me is 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 looking like it's going to have the advantage. I'm 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 of course I'm partial to group A in the sense that yeah, we've got United States, Mexico, Argentina and potentially Dominican Republic or Guyana. And when I saw the draw in real time, it absolutely brought back memories of the 2022 CONCACAF Championship. It's like, oh boy, here we go again. But as the draw continued to play out and then we have some of those group unknowns with the preliminary winners, those eventual winners, I think depending on who gets into that group B, they might take the cake as the group of death.
Sandra, um, I knew that we were always friends, so I love this one. Thank you very much, Jenny. We have history. She's, oh she's picking her loyalties. I don't. I don't. I don't understand. No, oh my I, goodness! This group is completely the group of death, as you mentioned, with Brazil and Colombia going into this one. Plus, I mean, you look at the qualifiers of the prelims who could potentially make their way into this group as well. As you just mentioned, whether it's Haiti or Puerto Rico, those two sides. Who do you think is going to get into this group of death? Oh, goodness. It's going to, I think, depend on a number of, of factors here. I know we saw the injury to do more to kind of close out this calendar year. That's not great for Haiti, but that doesn't mean that it's the end all be all for this team. I think this is a team that has a lot of fluidity. They have a lot of familiarity with each other. And Puerto Rico, while they have shown that they can be organized at times, I'm not too sure they're still going to be able to have enough for a single game elimination match against Haiti. So I'm, I'm I'm going to put uh, my cards all in for Haiti in this one to come out on top and seal that final spot in Group B. Okay, just returning to Group A here, um, Sandra, I know that you've picked Group B, and so your loyalties to Mexico just don't exist anymore. I'm going to make sure everybody on Twitter knows it. Um, with the transference of this national team from Monica to uh, Pedro Lopez now, obviously in the last iteration of this tournament, they did not make it out. They did not make it into the World Cup. A lot of things have changed since then, though. How do you see Mexico doing in this tournament in comparison? Hopefully really well. I want to see that. I think you and I and, and Attacking Third have, have spoken about Mexico's journey over the course of 2023. And I think you and I have spoken enough uh, about it that you know where my loyalties are, girl. Don't play me like that. <laughs> so look. I think when it comes down to, to Group A, while we were watching it in real time, maybe it did bring up those memories of the 2022 CONCACAF Championship. But things have shifted a little bit across the CONCACAF region and the landscape of women's football in, in terms of teams that are kind of hitting the reset button and building. And I think for the United States, we can argue and make an argument there that they're doing so within their program. But Mexico has also been doing the same in 2023. When we're looking at national team programs that are closing out this calendar year, there's a few that you could take a look at across the board and say that they're undefeated within some of their competitions. And two of those teams are in this group, in the United States and Mexico. I don't know if people actually have been talking enough about that for my liking, that Mexico has navigated their 2023 with these very small building steps. They've won a couple of gold medals at the Caribbean and Central American Games. They won the gold medal in the Pan American Games as well. And they went undefeated under Pedro Lopez to close out 2023. So when these two teams go head-to-head -head in February there's going to be a meeting of two undefeated teams. So there's going to be a little bit of uh, who's going to get the better of who there. Now, I think when you're looking at the record, the all-around record, when it comes to the senior national team level, it's a little bit different. Obviously, United States has the advantage. There has been some upsets for uh, Mexico, but more on the under and youth, youth team levels. So it all depends. I mean, Mexico and Argentina as well. You could take a look at the rivalry there. Those matches have a uh, sometimes been kind of close before in the past. And then who's to say who's going to get into this final spot for the preliminary weather, whether it's going to be Guyana or Dominican Republic. There's even less maybe familiarity there between Mexico and some of those other teams. So how they're going to come out on, on top of this one, I think is going to be kind of a little bit uh, indicated very early on, I think, in this group stage. I think that final group match between the two heavy hitters of this group might be, it might be determined by the time they go head to head. 
Oh, I like that, Sandra. It makes a lot of sense, of course, as kind of this group stage goes underway and the teams that go up against each other. Now, according to the rankings and kind of how this draw was went underway, the top three teams were the United States, Brazil, and Canada based on their rankings right now. But when you look across the board at this tournament and all of the nations that are in here, who is your top dog and your favorite to take the cake and win everything? I think when we're looking all across 12 teams, we knew going into this draw that there was going to be a top three seeded groups already within the pots to choose from. It was going to be United States. It's going to be the invitees in Comebol in Brazil. And then it was going to be Canada. But even when if you narrow it down to just sort of those top ranked teams, you can't look at how this draw ended up shaking out and not look at the United States and say they're going to go out there and take this. I'm still putting my money on the United States when it comes to actually picking a winner. I think it's going to be maybe a little bit of a grueling test in terms of that first bit of major tournament window for this team early on in February and going into March. So they'll have to navigate, uh, you know, player minutes and, and management load in that aspect. But it's it's going to be a good opportunity, I think, for interim head coach Twyla Kilgore and future manager Emma Hayes to kind of utilize this as kind of that main prep going into the Olympic Games. Who are those players that you want to get final looks at? Who are those players that you maybe might start narrowing down some groups line by line as far as selecting 18 players for an Olympic roster? All that stuff is going to matter. And I think this is going to be the tournament where they get some of those evaluations in. Sandra, last one for you. Who's your underdog of this tournament of the 12 teams that are selected? Who's your underdog dark horse nation? Yeah, you know, I got I got to say maybe looking throughout the groups, maybe it's not so much uh, in one of the other teams, the bigger heavy hitters, Brazil and Canada. I think those are the top dogs to take a look at this, even though I have United States taking it. But if I had to go with an underdog, I would still go with Mexico, even though they're sort of closing out this year um, as undefeated team alongside United States. They're going to have maybe a little bit less pressure on them going into a tournament like this, having, you know, been alongside United States before in a previous tournament with the CONCACAF championship, but they had a lot of pressure on them going into that. They played host. They had to deal with the burden of having not qualified for the previous World Cup. And we all know how they kind of folded a little bit under some of that pressure. Maybe there's going to be a little bit less in this one, and maybe they might have some upsets in them along the way. Ooh, I like it. I like it, Sandra. As always, um, we appreciate you joining us and taking the time. We will see you later on in the show uh, as well. Um, but for now, we're going to go to a break really quickly uh, because we are going to be talking all the players that were nominated for Female Player of the Year here in the United States and breaking down those nominations. Stay with us. Welcome back. As promised, we are talking the U.S. Women's National Team Female Player of the Year nominees. We see Crystal Dunn, Emily Fox, Naomi Gurma, Lindsay Horan, and Sophia Smith here. One of the big questions that are going to come up, I'm going to get to it before we get into these players here, no Trinity Rodman, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a big miss, frankly, in my, in my opinion. It's a young player forward for the United States that led the team in goal contributions in 2023 for the United States at 10. Five goals, five 
five assists. She was a game changer for this U.S. side that made it impossible not to have Trinity Rodman on the pitch. Um, this is a complete snub uh, for the U.S. standards uh, in terms of what she did at the international level. Now, uh, with Washington Spirit, she did not have the best season, but the club didn't have the best season overall. So I think that's a factor. But um, when the club doesn't perform well, can you blame one individual player at that point? I don't think so. This this was a missed opportunity to nominate Trinity Rodman for this award um, and potentially see her even pick up the win. Do you think that it's based upon the Women's World Cup performance and maybe not seeing what we expected to see from her in that tournament? Then if it's based on the World Cup performance, none of these players will be nominated. Maybe two of them. I'd give two okay. of the five Let's nominated. go ahead and talk about those two yeah. because those are the ones that I also see as potential for this award, and I don't think that the others are as deserving of it. Where are your, where's your head at? Uh, Naomi Gurma, defender, hands down, um, incredible nominee for the United States. This player, in just her second year with the Women's National Team, she has become the cornerstone of the defensive line for the United States. She has started in that center back role as she has become a leader. She's organized from the back. She's found different ways to bypass defenses, break lines with her passes, besides the fact that she's incredible 1v1 defender. Um, and then you look at what she's done in the NWSL just two years um, with San Diego Wave, and both years she is one defensive player of the year. If that doesn't say she's one of the best, then I frankly don't know what does. She has done so well and shown so much maturity as such a young player. This is such a well-deserved nomination for Gurma. I completely agree with you. I am such a big fan of her, and I talk about her every time on Attacking Third. But one of the things that came up when we were talking about Defender of the Year for NWSL was she was undeserving of that because she was with the national team for so long. There were maybe some other defenders that stayed back in the league that could have deserved that. But when we talk about the U.S. women's national team, she is the stonewall for that team in the defense. She's the one you don't even question will be in that back line, even when Emily Sonic came into play, when Alana Cook was not in the play. Naomi Germo was always going to be there. When Becky Sauerbrunn wasn't there, right? That You look at Becky Sauerbrunn, a player that has just been a leader on and off the field for the United States for so long, and you remove her from the entire foundation of the U.S. side, and you slot in a young player like Gurma, you expect there to be some rocky moments. You expect there to be some um, moments where uh, the defense falls apart and things get through. That didn't happen, right? Of course, the United States didn't perform as well as they wanted to at the World Cup. However, they they only conceded one goal in the Yeah, it's not play. that it was a Naomi Gurma fall apart. Exactly. Um, it, that we did it not wasn't perform. defensive errors, frankly. They couldn't score. It was They, they had really good defense. Um, so uh, Naomi Gurma is very much deserving of this nomination. I 100% agree with you there. The other name on this, um, I, we haven't talked about this, but the other name that I think is deserving is Lindsay Horan. Um, for me, she's one of the nominees that could deserve this. Mm -hmm. I, she has really grown on me over the years. I think that at the beginning, I wasn't the biggest fan, especially when she got the captain's armband. I was thinking, I think that there's someone that could deserve that more, but she really did step into those shoes so well for me, um, just to see the fighter mentality that she has. She kind of depicts um, just like, oh God, Michelle Akers-esque um, mm -hmm. to her in the way that she fights for the team and the way she wears that captain's armband. Exactly. You mentioned um, if we looked at just the World Cup, who would be nominated? It's Naomi Gurma and Lindsay Horan for me. When, when you watch the U.S. at the World Cup, there were so many things um, – going wrong, and Lindsay Horan looked like one of the pieces that was going right, playing so consistently. She she led the team in minutes this year. Uh, that's another very, very deserving nomination on this list of five players for the U.S. 
I 100% agree with you there, Lisa. I just want to make sure that we touch on this. There was a FIFA report on the World Cup and the social media abuse that players received during the World Cup. That also includes coaches and referees. And they found that one in five players at the FIFA Women's World Cup received targeted discriminatory abuse or threatening messages. That was an intersectional abuse between homophobic, sexual, sexist abuse. Um, that was 50% of the verified abuse. They did this by using AI in the beginning um, to kind of pass through what this abuse was, and then humans then detected what this was and qualified them into different sections. Um, but I think the biggest thing that came out when we brought this up was that you said you weren't surprised. No, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think if you follow women's football and, and you are on Twitter, um, you see a lot of horrible things that are out there. Um, I think it's interesting that FIFA did break this down. They did track the Men's World Cup in Qatar and then this most recent iteration of the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. And they found that the women were 29% uh, faced more abuse online than the men did. Um, and, and when you look at the United States and you talk to these players, so many of them say that they turn their phones off while they're at the World Cup. They create a bubble for them themselves because of um, how much talk there is out there and how much hatred there is and abuse that is being thrown at them via social media. Um, Colombian midfielder Lacey Santos said that as footballers, they suffer from two things, losing and then all of the things that are said on social media and the abuse, the abuse and the threats that come. And it, it, it's terrible and there are now numbers and stats to back it up and this is a very lengthy detailed report by FIFA. Um, I encourage anyone to, to kind of go look at the charts that have been put out there on social media now about this because it is very interesting to dive into that. No, it's it's sad because this is not a part of a game that we are proud of at all. You know, we want to say that this is the world game and this is something that we should grow and it's so healthy for our kids to play but then you see these numbers and you're thinking if I'm a parent and I'm putting them into you know I guess, fires way, putting them um, at the forefront saying, hey, yeah, go do this. But the, what comes with it is this mental aspect of having to be abused by all of these people who think that they have a say in what you're doing. I mean, Oh, and so much difficult. of it has nothing to do with actually the football of it. Yeah. It's homophobic. It's, it's discriminatory. It's threatening messages. It's racial. It's I mean, one of the situations that. was the Argentinian player who has a tattoo on her leg of Ronaldo um, as opposed to Messi. And for whatever reason, that caused so much of a stir that she received so much abuse online that she then put out a statement saying, like, I, the, I never said I didn't like Messi. Like, please stop doing this. Um, and Megan Rapinoe being someone that is also receiving a ton of that abuse based upon political mm -hmm. stances and whatever it may be that have nothing to do with the game and the beautiful tournament that we just watched um, in Australia and New Zealand, such a great exactly. um, matchup. But a lot of this is, is just eye-opening, I think, for some people who weren't aware. But like we said, because we are in women's football, we're kind of not surprised. Yeah. Um, but a light being brought on it does allow an opportunity for change. I think that that's something that we saw um, in La Liga when Vinicius Jr. was facing a ton of um, abuse in the stadiums. There were things done about it. Um, some of those people were being arrested, banned for life from those games. So I don't know exactly what the next steps are, but now that we have this information, what do we do with it? What does FIFA do with it um, to move forward and make sure that there is change and less of this? Um, but guys, thank you so much. We have more Attacking Third. We'll be back after a quick break. It was a huge match in the WSL between number one Chelsea and number two Arsenal. And Arsenal gets on the score sheet first. That's Caitlin Ford dribbling down. And then none other than Beth Mead puts this into the back of the net. Just takes one touch to the left to take out three Chelsea players out of this one. Quick little turn here. Set up Beth Mead. 
one touch to get out of the way, and she is on the score sheet again. Last week, she scored two goals as well, and her return from an ACL injury is looking great thus far. In the 13th minute, Chelsea gets one back when Jesse Fleming is going down the road, sets it up to Kaynard up on the right side. She cuts inside to her left foot, and a quick finish into that near post. I feel like the goalkeeper could have done better there. Quick left foot cut in, beautifully done from Joanna Kaynard. But Arsenal was not finished. It was their home stadium. It was Emirates, and they were not going to finish there. Steph Catley puts a big corner kick in, and it is Amanda Ilsted who gets on the back of this one. We saw her score four goals in the Women's World Cup this summer. That is not someone you leave unmarked there. But Ann Katchenberger not doing a great job goalkeeping there. It just seems like she swipes at that one. Really unfortunate for Chelsea to concede on a set piece there, but you have to mark Amanda Ilsted. Then in the 38th minute, you see Alessia Russo on a beautiful through ball in on the left side. She just takes one touch, opens up her hips, and sends that in the back post there. A beautiful setup. You see her pick her head up, pick her corner out, and there was no chance for Ann Katrenberger. Um, again, Arsenal just looking so clinical. I think they only had four shots on target, and three of them are going in for them here thus far. And then on this one, there is a penalty call. It looks a little bit soft for me here, but the referee points to the penalty spot and says that that one is going to count. Alessia Russo steps up to take this one and finishes that in the left bottom corner. You see Ann Kratchenberger dive the right way, but too powerful of a kick there. Alessia Russo with a brace in this match. There was 59,042 people in the Emirates for this match, and Arsenal definitely showing out for their home fans there. Lisa, what did you take of this game? Arsenal was incredibly dominant throughout this match. I mean, especially the first 45 minutes, and not just because of the three goals that they had on four shots on target. Arsenal did such a great job of moving the ball, of, of sucking Chelsea in from one side to the other. The transition or transition moments for Arsenal, it confused the Chelsea defense, and they capitalized on that. The Gunners were able to do that. I think it says a lot the fact that they concede one to Chelsea. It's now back even at 1-1, and Arsenal comes back, and they get two goals in two minutes to solidify things in the first half. They did such a good job. They were on the attacking foot. They wanted this way more than Chelsea wanted it. I completely agree about the effort aspect, but more than anything, it was the ability to be clinical. Yeah. They were so clinical with the chances that they had. Chelsea had a ton of chances, unable to finish them. Um, they are now tied with points. They are 1-2, but tied in points. Chelsea still ahead with goal differential but why don't we go and listen to our Anita Jones, who spoke to Emma Hayes after the loss. I'm not going to make any excuses. Like, I don't want to make them. They had international break too. But for us, we want to compete, and you have to compete to play top-level football matches, and I thought we got bullied today. What was your message at half-time? You said, of course, you didn't feel like they defended well. You made a few changes there, and then later on in that second half. Yeah, we can't look back. You know, we... We made some changes to go for it in the second half, but then we conceded a fourth and it made it virtually impossible. Um, it's a brilliant dressing room and they know they were poor today and I think all of us will make sure we work at it this week to, to improve what we're doing in preparation for Heck and on Thursday. That fourth goal, did you see the incident that led to the penalty? Did you think it was a penalty? Just Errors, individual errors from players, but there were plenty of them throughout the game, not just that moment. We see Emma Hayes incredibly disappointed with her team's performance there. Um, during the match at halftime, she makes three changes in the lineup, um, expecting a bit of a difference in her team there, but we didn't see it. 
from Chelsea. I, I would say that there was a little bit more defensive organization in the second half because of those changes. You look at who she brought in. It was Ashley Lawrence, Kadisha Buchanan, and Fran Kirby all coming in off the bench at halftime. Um, that's a right-sided change, right? That's Those are players on, that'll play on the right side and can slot into those roles. I provided a little bit more defensive stability for this Chelsea side, and they had more organization, specifically in the second 45 minutes. But I, I like that Emma Hayes, the, how she handled the post-conference, the post-game conference for this with Anita Jones in the media scrum. Um, she was like, we can't make excuses for this. We struggled. And she said, quote, it was a long 98 minutes. When I saw those extra eight minutes of stoppage time come up, I could just tell that this Chelsea side was ready to close the book on this game. It, it wasn't that the Blues gave up by any means, but when you concede three goals in the first half and then in the second half you concede another one and the opposition is just so confident. They've got the fans behind them. Arsenal was, there was no way you were going to stop them. At that point, Chelsea, you just want the game to be over. You want that final whistle to blow. So you can go in the locker room. You can be upset and you can be frustrated. Your coach is going to be disappointed in you. You know the players are also disappointed in themselves. Uh, They just wanted that game done and over with at the end because they all struggled. Yep, that's Chelsea's side. Why don't we hear what Alessia Russo on Arsenal's side was feeling after that match, who spoke to Anita Jones. Alessia, we were just talking to Beth Mead and she said she feels like the title race is going to go down to the wire after that game and performance from your side. Do you agree? Yeah, I think this league is so competitive, um, but results like today are really important and shows where we want to go as a team. But um, yeah, I think it's a long season ahead um, and some massive games coming up. But um, yeah, it was really positive today. Talking about results, you were key to them. Two goals today in front of a packed house at the Emirates. Talk us through that first goal, please. Yeah, I mean, it was a lovely ball through and I just wanted to chase it down and get a shot off and luckily it went in. But I think, yeah, it was just a great game and we set up lots of chances, especially in the first half. And uh, we were clinical with them too, so it set the tone for the game. This is a look at Alessia Russo's match stats. In 32 touches, she had three shots and two of them goals. Uh, (laughs) Not too bad of a night for Alessia Russo with that brace. Uh, Yeah, I mean, when you look at this match, Arsenal, uh, they just outplayed Chelsea and and what they were able to do defensively, limiting the touches that Chelsea forward Sam Kerr, uh, Lauren James had in the central areas of the pitch, they limited their time on the ball. They forced it wide. They forced Chelsea into those pressure pockets. And then once Arsenal won the ball, they they moved quickly and they were incredibly organized throughout. And that's what helped them. I mean, this was a a title race game, I believe it, till the very end. Well, they were going to be separated by six Mm -hmm. points if Chelsea had earned three more of those points. And now they are even in points. This was a big one for Arsenal. Heading into the week, though, I was listening to Emma Hayes' comments and she didn't seem like she was ready to say that this was that big of a game. She kept blowing it off, saying, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you know, it's just like any other game. We know I don't prepare for rivals, and we've played this game so many times. And it just seemed like it wasn't that big of a deal. Obviously, it was a big deal for Arsenal. It was a huge deal for Arsenal, and you could tell by the way that Arsenal started this match. They were on the front foot. They were putting pressure on. They had a game plan. Jonas Edeval going into this one and saying, yes, this was a really big win for us post game, but they have another match against Tottenham coming up, and now they're going to turn the page, and they need to win that one because it, they're still not at the top of the table. This was big for Arsenal. 
Arsenal. They took that next step. They're now even on points with Chelsea. However, goal differential, Chelsea stays at the top of the table. Arsenal wants that number one spot. That's exactly what you want, especially at this point in the season to claim that away from Chelsea, to hand them their first loss of the season as well. This meant a lot for Arsenal, for the fans. I mean, did you see that packed stadium, Jenny? 59,000 people at the Emirates supporting the Arsenal women here. I'm hoping some of those were Chelsea fans as well. That didn't leave <laughs> too upset at this one. But I'm trying to figure out, you know, you're talking about what went so right for Arsenal. Their different yeah. mindset heading into this game, knowing that they needed this win. Um, but what is it about Chelsea? You know, we know that they were missing Millie Bright and that being a huge miss for them on the back line. That is a big miss. I mean, Millie Bright just provides such structure, organization, uh, of course, her ability to defend. And in those transition moments, um, that's how Arsenal scored. I mean, two of their goals, you look at those moments where they were able to get in behind. Um, that doesn't happen necessarily. I mean, not necessarily, but with Millie Bright there, there's a lesser chance of that happening because of her ability to organize, her ability to position herself so one pass doesn't bypass the entire back line of Chelsea. And even on the set piece, I mean, there were a lot of breakdowns that Chelsea saw throughout this match. And Catherine, um, uh, Berger, she did not have a great match. No, she didn't. And that's uh, really surprising because she typically is very strong for Chelsea. Yes. And I wonder how much Millie Bright's leadership um, does for uh, exactly. them on that back line it, because Millie Bright and Anne Katchenberger have such a connection in that. Exactly. And you, and you think of the corner kick, like we rarely see that happen from Berger. And exactly. she came off her line. Uh, she mistimed the ball. She misjudged where the ball was going to land. And she's two feet behind the ball. And it's Amanda Illestat who just has free range to, to head this and find the back of the net. Um, it was breakdowns all over the place for sure for Chelsea. If you just think about that first goal too, letting Beth yeah. Mead score, she's completely alone on that back post on that one. You talk about the through ball there. With Millie Bright, that wouldn't have happened. Um, off the corner kick on the set pieces. There's just so many different things that... Chelsea got wrong in this it, one, but Arsenal really capitalizing. It wasn't Chelsea's day, and Arsenal took advantage of that and capitalized on every moment they had. Okay, we'll be back for more Attacking Third, brought to you by the Marriott Bonvoy Boundless Cart. Reward your passion and earn points when you stay close to the action. Welcome back into Attacking Third. Yesterday, Meg Linehan reported um, from The Athletic that the Portland Thorns are in the final phases of being sold to the Bathal family. For more on this, we bring in our expert, Sandra Herrera. Sandra, what can you tell us? Uh, I think I think the first thing that we're all excited to maybe talk a little bit about is the fact that this is finally going to happen, that it seems like the finish line is finally there. So we know now, after various reports, now Megalinehan confirming that it's close. I believe initial reports came out of Sportico kind of tying the Rithal family, NBA, Sacramento King owners to the league, although there was no initial uh, comment from Portland around that. Now we have a little bit more detailed reporting saying that this is going to get close. But it's not going to actually be finaled until about 2024, so the early stages of then, which is a little bit of a lapse from the initial deadline that we heard from Commissioner Berman saying that she had hoped that the end of the calendar year was when some of these deals will be finalized, whether it was Portland Thorns or OL Ring. 
Sandra, um, this is a Portland Thorn side that has been for sale for a year, as you mentioned, the timeline looking a little bit longer for uh, Commissioner Jessica Berman, NWSL fans, Portland Thorns fans, as this sale is hopefully going to happen in the new year. Uh, but I want to talk about the tag price of this Portland Thorns club, because when you look at historically, um, Michelle Kang made a huge investment in Washington Spirit, $35 million, and then the sale of Chicago Red Stars, that was uh, $35.5 and then another $25.5 million into investment. What is the, the sale price of the Portland Thorns, do you expect? Yeah, I think it's going to reach right around maybe that 60 mil mark, which is what we had initially heard was kind of the holdout price tag uh, from Paulson and company for the overall sale of this club. I think hearing you run down the numbers of some of those previous sales, I think you could take a look at these existing club negotiations and take a look at maybe some of the differences between them. I think when you look at the Chicago Red Stars specifically, I think it's not an unfair thing to say that that was absolutely a depressed asset when you're looking at negotiating a new terms of a deal for an existing franchise, whereas Portland Thorns was in a much different boat. We're talking about a franchise that has multiple season ticket holders, that was a team that has different sponsorships, lots of partnerships already in place going into their league, very well established, despite maybe being two clubs that were coming off of some very negative headlines, both clubs being named in multiple investigations coming out of the last two years. So why wasn't one more, why weren't both of them maybe dep uh, depressed assets versus just kind of one? But I think that number, that number mark anywhere between 50 to 60 mil is maybe going to be that sort of sweet spot in any potential future sales of what are existing clubs. I think obviously having the two expansion franchise coming into the league and Bay FC really making a splash with all of the numbers that have been tied to their initial bid, kind of maybe moving the needle a little bit. But taking a look at the difference between sales of an existing franchise versus new clubs, organic clubs that are trying to make that organic expansion bid into the league, not a club that's trying to be absorbed. I think there's some differences there. I think when we're looking at this league, making this kind of transformational change, that sometimes things don't look the same when you first started. And I think that's where we're at right now with this season. We continue to see the sales of a Chicago restaurant teams now Portland Thorns and what we're hearing about Owo Rain as well and they're going to and eventually have their new ownership in as well. Um, now I'm going to switch gears to the expansion draft. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Bay FC because they are um, led by Albertine Montoya, a new manager there, but they only have two players thus far on their roster. What are you expecting them and their kind of idea of what they want on Friday to be? I hope they make a splash, honestly. They they have the first pick, and this was something that they earned, that they won, right? We we, we saw the asset distribution order come through the pipeline of, of media statements from the league between Bay FC and Utah Royals. They figured out how they were going to have first picks within the expansion draft or the entry draft in January 2024, and Bay FC hold that first pick in this one. So maybe they set the tone in this upcoming event. They have multiple expansion drafts to take a look back at as blueprints, sort of maybe see if there's a recipe of success there. I think when it comes to kind of building and adding players, 
ahead of that expansion draft. Utah maybe has the advantage in the edge a little bit, having already kind of picked up and acquired and signed or traded for six players on their roster. So what are the needs for Bay FC going into this one? It's really hard to tell because they've only have a couple of players under their belt right now. I guess as an expansion side, the needs are literally everything. But are they maybe going to follow a San Diego Wave blueprint and try to think a little bit more defensively to start off building their roster? We'll see. Sandra, when you do look at this Bay FC roster that consists of two and only two players, defender Caprice Idasco and midfielder Alex Luera, who also can play a defensive, they've already started that with getting two defensive-minded players. But we don't know the players across the board that are protected and unprotected as of right now. However, if you are sitting in that chair on draft day, expansion draft day for Bay FC, which offensive player would you like to see sign with Bay FC? Through free agency or through what I'm going to assume is, is there a protected list that they have to go off of? Through the list on the expansion draft day, even though we don't know that. Just like of all the well, players in the league. Come on. I want you to shoot for the stars here. You know, I think as far as an attacking player, I think there's a lot of talent out there. I, I think because of some of the rules in place right now with some of the question marks around free agency that those players aren't necessarily eligible to be selected. Is this a franchise that's still in the process of trying to negotiate those deals? We know that that transaction's deadline is going to end right before the expansion draft takes place and then it's going to open up again at the conclusion at the expansion draft so if there are attackers across the board for at this point they only have partial protection from some teams they really have their pluck of the of the litter here so taking a look at maybe some attacking players i think you have to look at maybe those top six teams in the nwsl who kind of closed out the year what do their attacking lines look like and who could potentially be on those lists are they going to lean more towards experienced players who know what it's like to kind of be part of an attack in NWSL, know what to expect from NWSL defenses, or are they going to kind of get a little star-sided by maybe bigger names that might be left on those lists? I kind of hope they go a little bit with experience. Maybe they're going to go with some players that are familiar with playing in this league and the speed of this league, and maybe they're going to try to utilize some of their money to go and sign a big key free agent for the attack. So I'm going to go with experience, more veteran attacker, through the expansion draft, and maybe they go ahead and sign through free agency for an attacker. All right, I like that, Sandra. I just like to see what you're going to throw at us. Um, but but I appreciate that one. When You mentioned Utah. They've already signed seven players to their roster compared to Bay FC's just two players. Um, what do you think the game plan is for Bay FC? The fact that they didn't make as many moves in this open window where they could have signed free agents or they could have made trades with other clubs. What's the game plan for Bay FC? I hope it's no mercy. That should be the game plan for, for Bay FC. Uh, look, I think there's a lot of excitement around this team coming into the fold for 2024. They are going to be the third California expansion team to enter the NWSL. It's a big state with a lot of talent across the board. But I think maybe just having a couple of players announced so far are just little glimpses into how they're trying to navigate, into how they're trying to operate. So I 
hope they're going to go through this expansion draft kind of having some of those conversations ahead of time. We saw a lot of that happening in last year's expansion draft between Angel City, between San Diego Wave. There was a ton of conversation and a ton of movement that took place. Clubs that were willing to return the emails, pick up the phone call, have those conversations to ultimately do what's best for the players. Expansion is a tough time for, for some players. There's a lot of unknowns and there's moving parts that take place and they don't have that sense of security really until after that type of event happens. So while I hope Bay FC does have no mercy and they want to make sure that they go out there and get the players that they deem as good and best fits for their rosters, I do hope that there's a lot of really good conversations happening right now within mutual player interest and uh, for the clubs to go ahead and those existing clubs to go ahead and continue entertain those conversations ahead of the expansion draft. Wow. Sandra, what I got from that is that you care about the players' well-being as well. Thank you. I think we all should. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you for joining us and for caring about the players' well-being. I really appreciate your answer on that and making sure those conversations are taking place. An incredibly important part that people forget. Uh, we have so much more Attacking Third coming for you. We'll have Darian Jenkins jump back on as well. Stay with us. Welcome back into Attacking Third. I'm Jenny Chu here with Lisa Carlin, and we're going to try Darian Jenkins. I'm happy to be with my girlies. Let's get straight into this expansion draft that is coming up. Let's talk Utah Royals under Amy Rodriguez. I know you are from Utah. No one ever believes me when I say Darian Jenkins is from Utah, but you are. Um, they have seven players on their roster thus far. How have you seen them building their roster? Yeah, I, I am from Utah. This is this is my fact. <laughs> I tell people you're right. Nobody nobody buys it. Um, but yeah, I think Utah's making really good moves. Amy Rodriguez knows what she's doing. You look at the players that she's brought on, and she's bringing a lot of experience. And I think being a new team, again, a new team for this Royal squad, you need experience. You need these players that have a couple years in the league that are familiar with the intensity it is, and especially being in Utah. That is not an easy place, an easy stadium to go and train and acclimate to. So I, I think what she's doing and what their staff is doing is very, very smart, bringing the likes of Madison Pogarch, uh, Kaylee Real, Michelle Vasconcelos, Michaela Clough, players with experience that are going to add a lot to this team without having to start totally new. Darian, this is a revamped Utah Royals side that were formerly in the league. You mentioned it's hard to play there, hard to play in that stadium. You've done it. Why is it so hard? Are you kidding? You know how high up elevation it is over there? It is difficult to acclimate to. Um, so I think that that's going to be a, a big advantage. When you go play in Utah, your mouth is dry. It's difficult to breathe. So these players going in, having that advantage when you're going into the NWSL season and preseason with these matches, and it's a really nice stadium. Teams are going to want to go play there. I'm sure that that's going to be kind of accustomed for them to get more matches. It's difficult. So it's a, it's a really big edge. I don't think a lot of people think about physically as a place to go and play. When we talk about those players, Darian, that have been signed thus far, there's a lot in the defensive end of the field, a couple of midfielders as well. We're thinking they need to sign some attackers, some potential strikers. Who are you looking at that maybe they should be signing? So I actually have a nice little list I prepared. Some Love of the players it. I think, think they should go with some experience, but also some big hitters. Diana Ordonez, I think, would be an amazing signing for them. How would you not want Rookie of the Year, this huge attacking presence that can score goals with her head, both feet. She's great at connecting up the lines of the field. I also think some 
powerful athletes and some people that are going to go one v one on this on the end lines. Ali Watt, Elise Bennett, Jasmine Spencer, another utility player who can play anywhere on the pitch and she's successful and crushes it. Um, so there's there's a lot of a lot of options, but I think they need some experience and some powerhouses that are going to kind of put defenses on their heels and it'll allow them a little bit more space to play and kind of assume an identity because we we have no idea really what to expect. It's A-Rod's first time in a professional coaching career. Um, I imagine it's going to be incredibly attacking heavy just because we know how awesome A-Rod is and in her attack and that's her, that's her bread and butter. So uh, I think with those people in those positions and that sort of mindset, it'll give them the space to create their own style of play. Darian, in recent years, we've had expansion draft with Angel City and San Diego, two teams that built their rosters differently than each other. Of course, they both wanted to succeed in their first years. Um, San Diego did that. They succeeded in their first two years, ultimately winning the Shield in just their second year. When you look at this Utah side and being led by Amy Rodriguez, a former player, she is attacking-minded. Do you see Utah following a similar path to either Angel City or San Diego. Yeah, I most definitely do. That's why I think they're they're followed suit and taken notes of these two other super successful expansion teams and are making their moves early. We're seeing Bay taking a little bit more of a cautious, I, I don't really know what they're doing, but Utah is saying, no, we're going to get everything in order beforehand. We're going to have our plan of action, our players who kind of fit the style of play we're looking to to play, have some experience. And I think that they're going about it the right way. Then you have players, also from a player's mindset, you're a little bit more settled. You're not so nervous. You know, they have seven players, you're not so nervous going into this, this expansion draft and having to deal with those nerves and that really quick turnaround where you're having to uproot your whole life and move to another state. So at least they have seven players that they know are going to be settled. They know where they're going. That gives a lot of confidence and also a good energy to the rest of the players that are going to be joining the squad, that they have some sort of familiarity going into this market. Darian, you mentioned that right there. You talk about um, those expansion drafts and how players feel on the end of that. I know that you're a player who has experienced that. Can you just give us an inside look into that? Because a lot of people are not aware of, of what it, people are going through in that moment that this is happening and finding out that their whole lives are uprooted. Yeah, I mean, sport is brutal. This comes with the territory of trades and whatnot happening at least you know players have a lot more rights and <laughs> get some sort of notification notification beforehand because before players used to find out on twitter when these things are happening um so thankfully that has changed but it's still nerve-wracking because you're right you have to uproot your whole life move into a new market you also have to evaluate where you stand on a team that's maybe a little bit more established say you're going into a gotham or you know, a rain where it's going to be really hard to break into that into that starting lineup. Um, but, you know, you never know. You have to take the, these moments with grace and, and hope that you have representation and you're communicating enough to set yourself up to be as successful as you can be when, you know, this inevitably expansion draft happens and you're put into a different position. And not only that, trades can happen before and after. I know we have until tomorrow night where some players are finalizing where they're moving. Um, so there's a lot going on and, you know, I don't miss being in that position, but it comes with the territory of just being a player. 
the chaos is about to ensue. Um, it's fun to watch sometimes from a distance, especially when the players consent to it and they want to go there. You mentioned how Utah is making all these changes ahead of time. They're ahead of the game. They've got seven players already on their roster. Orlando Pride, they were also thinking ahead of this expansion draft. Orlando is the only NWSL club that has full protection from both Bay FC and Utah Royals. As a player um, on Orlando Pride, how does that change your mindset going into Friday's expansion draft? I mean, it's good and bad. If you're a player that's, you know, been on a bubble in Orlando and maybe you were looking forward to having the option of being in this expansion draft and going somewhere new and maybe getting more minutes or going to a team that fits your style of play a little bit better, there's that side of it. And then there's also, wow, I don't have to watch my name getting drawn up by Royals or Bay and have to just kind of uproot my life and go somewhere. At least, you know, now they have a little bit of time to sit back watch what happens, and then make some decisions with their representation afterwards. But it's a double-edged sword. But great moves by Haley Carter in Orlando for securing that because no, no one else did. Darian, thank you so much for giving us the insight there as a player and your expertise on this draft. We're looking forward um, to that expansion draft on Friday. As always, thank you for joining us. Thanks, ladies. <laughs> All right. Well, Lisa, so much to kind of break down there, especially what Darian said about Orlando Pride being the one that is protected, but that kind of being a negative. I have never thought of that. If you did want a new opportunity, if you did want to go to a new team where you had a new start and potentially more playing time available for you. Yeah, and, and there is free agency in the NWSL, but if you're a player that's younger, um, sometimes those are the bubble players that haven't solidified their spot on a roster and, and a role within a team. You are looking to go somewhere new and start fresh with new coaching staff, um, but the expansion draft is exciting. There's a lot that can happen, and the NWSL gets to gain two more clubs, um, and the growth of this league is impressive, and it's incredible, and there'll be a lot more we talk about with the expansion draft later this week. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> On Friday, we're going to have that show as well, but before we get to that, I just want to mention that when these new teams are formed, a culture is also forming, right? Exactly. Like, the leadership group is also forming. Like, how the teammates um, talk to each other, how they respect each other, and how the living conditions, all of those things are being um, set, the foundation is being set, and being at the ground level of that is incredibly important. Yeah, especially when you look at Utah, I mean, they're going to play an incredible stadium. You've also got Amy Rodriguez, a former player, former U.S. international, also who is stepping into that head coaching role. There's a lot of pros that come with that because she understands where these players have been. There's also a, a new CBA and new rules set in place for the NWSL, so it's a lot easier for these players. 100%. Thank you for joining us here on Attacking Third, um, presented by the Boundless Bonvoy Boundless Card. Reward your passions and earn points when you stay close to the action. We're going to be back on Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time following the conclusion of the 2023 expansion draft. Stay here with Attacking Third then.